Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. Yeah, it really is a, a, my privilege to be here this morning with you. Thanks for having me. C.S. Lewis once wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Now, we all have lenses, don't we? So my name is Paul Edie, right? And I was born in Durban, South Africa. Boom. In 1983. Right? Oh, oh, those are not yours. They're the cheap ones. What are you, what are you looking at? This went better the first time. 1983. Uh, I'm a white male, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> I was, I, I went to an all boys Model C high school. I was saved at the age of 13 into a white Western Christian church expression. And then let's throw in, if I'm honest, I've been deeply influenced by rock and roll. So I have some non-conformist angst deep inside of me. So that's, you're going to have to And that's another lens. Okay. All right. So this is your moment. If you want to leave, you can go now. What? No. You just do so silently. So you've got about 10 seconds. All right. But you see, the more lenses we have, the less clearly we're able to see. And we all have lenses. And so we all have a way that we see the world. Uh, it's called a worldview. A worldview is a set of beliefs and values that shape a person's approach to the most important issues of life. Now, we live in an era in history of postmodernism. Are you aware of that? So we know postmodernity, and postmodernism is a big, fat reaction to modernity. So you don't have air cons, but let's just imagine we did in this room. It's prophetic. Just, yes, air cons. So you imagine there are air cons in this room, and they are set to 22 degrees. Now, modernism says, the, the air con says 22 on it. Therefore, the temperature in this room is 22 degrees. That's all that matters. So based on science, based on all these things, factual digits and all that stuff, that is the truth, all right? And that's what you take your cue off. Now, where did that get us? That, get us to, that got us to nuclear warfare and all these things. So humanity looked at modernity and said, actually, science and maths and all those things just lead us to destruction. So they reacted and said, no, the 22 degrees on the instrument doesn't matter because we don't trust the instrument anymore. All that matters is I feel cold. And so all the cold people go into a corner of the room and they become this little truth community. And then all the hot people... Temperature-wise, temperature anyway. They say, no, it's boiling in here still. And they form a little community, a little truth community, and they form a little huddle in this corner. And then you got those that say, no, but this is just right, and we'll call them the Goldilocks group, right? <laughs> and the people who are cold can do nothing to convince the people who are hot that it's cold because they're like, it is not. It's all based on how they feel. And so in the world around us, we've got 
all these different perspectives, all of us looking, trying to find truth from all these different angles, and no one actually settling on the same thing. So these lenses are based and shaped by the culture in which we are raised. So what is culture? A good definition of culture for me is the water in which we swim. I want you to imagine you have a pet goldfish. Call him Nemo. Eh? And little Nemo is in his little fish bowl, and he's on a shelf in your living room. Now, let's say you got really close with Nemo and were able to communicate with Nemo. I mean, that's how close you got. I mean, little Dr. Doolittle kind of thing. And so you went to Nemo and said, Nemo, you're in water all the time. Tell me about water. Nemo would look at you and go, what on earth are you talking about? What is water? You see, culture is invisible until it is foreign. We do not see our own culture. The only time you can you see culture is when you are exposed to a culture that is not your own. It is different to yours. The only way to assess your own culture is by exposing yourself to a culture different to yours. You guys have been preaching into building a nation. You guys are a church who want to build our nation. You guys are a church who want to shine a light in the darkness. You guys want to point to the hope of Christ in this nation. Am I right? Yes. Sometimes our culture sets us up for failure. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be able to see through the lenses, take off the lenses, identify the lenses so that we can see truthfully and then deal with the issue. So how does our culture set us up for failure? You look at 1 Samuel 17, probably the most um, well-known story in the Bible, David and Goliath. David, the youngest of a whole bunch of brothers, he's the shepherd boy left out in the field to tend the sheep. His oldest brothers are out on the battle lines in the Israelite army fighting against the Philistines. Actually, no one's fighting, uh, but they're there. And David's father, Jesse, sends David to take some supplies to his brothers on the battle lines. So off David goes. When he arrives there, what does he find? He finds the Israelite army cowering in fear as Goliath, this Philistine giant and warrior, is taunting the armies of God, the Israelite army, saying, anyone who dares to come and fight me, whoever beats me, your, your side wins. And so David is appalled, firstly, at Goliath's defiance of the army of God, but he's also appalled at the cowardice of the Israelite army. So he approaches King Saul as this lati, <laughs> as this little guy, and he says, I'll take this, Ocon. And so King Saul says, all right, nothing fathering and protective about King Saul. He's like, cool, we'll give it a go. <laughs> and he says, all right, wear my armor. Because in the military, it would be an, a cultural expectation, a cultural norm, that armor would aid you in your mission to take down the giant especially the king's armor. So King Saul says, go for it. Here's my armor. So David starts to put on the armor layer by layer. Eventually David's like, all right, this is probably not gonna go that well. <laughs> all I've got against this giant is my speed, my agility, and now I can't move. Now in the military, that was a cultural expectation. You don't go to battle without your armor. Thankfully, David was not in the military. He was left out in the fields. So he recognized where his strengths lay. And he could recognize that this armor was not going to aid him in the mission. 
So he rejected the armor, no. And we know that he went out before the giant with a sling and some stones and he took down the giant, beheaded him. All right, but that's, the point is, sometimes our culture sets us up for failure and we continue to put it on, continue to put it on, continue to live according to it. But it's only from outside of the fishbowl that you recognize the fishbowl. David, not being in the military, could recognize it as unhelpful. And we've seen a recognition of this lately. There have been things in our nation that have come to light. We didn't even know they were there. We're oblivious all of a sudden. One of these things is this gender-based violence issue. Weeks ago or months ago, the outcry started. And uh, all of a sudden, people started saying, actually, the water in which we swim is dirty. It is not pure. There is something wrong with the water in which we are swimming. We have to understand that it's always the people in power who have the capacity to change things. But it's also always the people in power who are the last to recognize the need for change. So if I'm in power, why on earth would I want to change anything? I want to stay in power, right? But we have to understand who's in power and who has the capacity to bring change. So I'm going to use an example. Do we have any lefties in the room today? Left-handers. Yes, we got some. Claim it. Claim it. Right, so what we're going to do, we're going to do a fire tunnel. I don't know if you know a fire tunnel. We're going to take up an offering for our left-handers. We're going to pray for them. We're just going to minister to them. We're going to bless them with cars and all that stuff, right? <laughs> I'm also left-handed. Um, yeah. So, uh, left-handers. Are you okay? Are you okay? I really want to ask you sincerely. Are you all right? Are you okay? Hot, full, good, okay? Did you have to use scissors this week? Hey, are you okay? Do you need, do we have any, can we get like a hand massage going or something, just hand cream, hand massage? Um, what about, what about drawing money at the ATM? You know, the, 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 the like, <laughs> hey? Or, or maybe if you're at, at varsity or something and you, you know those, those desks that are built into the chair? And so you're like, uh, awkward. <laughs> hey, or, or um, what about just handwriting? You know, writing with ink, you know, like we do sometimes nowadays. Not, not that often nowadays. But you know, us right-handers, we kind of, we write and our hand slides on a clean page. But a left-hander, because we write from left to right, they, they just go straight through their ink, smudge. So left-handers, can, can I see your hands? Any ink smudges? No ink smudges, we good? Be good today, it's Sunday. Who's writing on a Sunday, seriously? <laughs> one more example. Do we have a left-handed guitarist in the room, by any chance? Okay, so it's one thing to go looking for your dream guitar. It's a whole nother story to look for your dream guitar left-handed. You know, Jimi Hendrix couldn't even get that right. He had to just play a right-handed guitar strung the other way, right? When Hendrix can't get it right, it's a problem, problem in society, you know? <laughs> so... How many of you who are right-handed woke up in the morning thinking, my people rule? Do you realize you live in a world which affords you all this privilege every day? Privilege you may not think about, you didn't work or ask for, and you did not earn. How many of you think you are advantaged in life on a daily basis because you are right-handed? How aware are you of being a part of a social identity group in power called the right-handed people? 
One of the ways in which unearned privilege occurs is when one group's culture, values, and ways of interpreting the world get built into the fabric of institutions within a society and are then made invisible. The group's culture is made invisible by being called the standard. We have to recognize who is in power. We have to also recognize that the people in power will not be the first to recognize who's in power. Correct? You're picking up what I'm putting down? So I do not condone the hashtag men are trash thing. That is not a good thing. Do I believe that some men are trash? Yes. Do I believe that men are trash? No. All right. But I don't think we have to take the blame, but I do believe that we should take responsibility. See, when I look at Jesus, I look at the gospel, I see someone who laid down his own power so that he could empower the powerless. And so, men, if we start to not say we are trash, we are trash, but we start to say, okay, what, how can we take responsibility for this? And if we are the people in power, how can we bring change? How can we release the oppressed? So how do we get here? How do, do we just arrive one day and this fishbowl is just black with sand? Was it like a big dump truck that beep, 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 it just offloaded into a little fishbowl? No. Society was just one teaspoon of sand at a time. When I look at my own life, I look, Model C, all boys high school. How do we talk about girls when I was in high school? Teaspoon of sand. A Christian surf ministry. But we used to call the girls bag watchers because we would go surfing and they would watch our bags on the beach. It's, it's humorous, but was it another teaspoon of sand? Gabe and I, as you know, led a youth group together, and we had two awesome, like, all-girl cell groups, life groups. And they would serve on a Friday night at our youth, and they would, they would clean up the hot chocolate muds and whatever. The guys, it's not like the guys weren't doing anything. They were running around carrying heavy things. And, but the girls would help us by cleaning up. But we called the one of these groups Witka, which stands for Woman in the Kitchen, and the other, GWEC, which, which stands for Girls Who Enjoy Cleaning. And if we're honest, it's funny. I mean, let's not, let's not pretend. Let's not be super self-righteous and go, it's not funny. How dare you? It's funny. Would I do it again? Oh, with some careful thought and consideration, probably no. But when you're leading a youth group, careful and thought and consideration don't exist. So anyway, what, what did that model to the guys we were leading when we called them Witka and Gwek. What did that model to those girls about how they can expect to be treated even within the church? Was it another teaspoon of sand in the water? Let's go a little bit more general. What about a generation of parents who refuse to talk about sex to their children? And so this topic became taboo and shameful and so we had teenagers learning more about it from their peers than their parents. What about parents giving their little kids cell phones and unlimited access to pornography without any guidance? The sitcoms that I grew up watching that spoke about marriage and how women would be treated and women would be uh, like criticized and made to look stupid. Do you remember those sitcoms? What did, 
what did that teach us about women? What lens did that put on men about how to see women? Our marketing, our, our billboards, what is that, how does that teach us to objectify women? Don't blame me. You know the guys? I'm not meant like big Facebook rants. Don't, don't lump me in with those guys. No, actually take some responsibility so you can be a part of the solution. It all colors the water in which we swim. And we don't see it until it's too late. So what's our response? So this is all like doom and gloom a little bit, eh? What is our response? Galatians 3.26 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So take off your Jew lens. Take off your Greek lens, your save lens, your male lens, all that. Jesus is the water in which we swim. You are all baptized into Christ Jesus. You don't swim in your Greek ocean, your South African ocean, your white ocean, your, your millennial ocean. You swim in the ocean of Christ. The way you see the world is through the lens of Christ. And I'm not saying that I believe in a monoculture. I believe that heaven is going to be colorful and diverse and creative. So I don't, I don't think we all, okay, give up our culture, leave our culture at the door when you come here. We just, I don't know, we just paint everything white, padded walls and just no expression whatsoever, you know? I believe that heaven is colorful, that Jesus is creative and fun. And so I believe in the diversity of cultures. But Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Remembering that Hebrew culture was completely defined by the law. The law was fundamental and foundational to what Hebrew culture is and was. And so if you imagine on the stage, we've got a whole bunch of jars and some of them have this much water, others less water, you know, different levels of water, but they all got a bit of water. Every culture has a glimpse of the nature and the character of God in it. But every culture is not there is no culture that is full up. Every culture has a lack that represents the fallenness of man. Jesus says, I've not come to abolish these cultures, but I've come to fill them up. And I believe that it is our responsibility as the church, our call, our privilege, our privilege to be able to recognize this culture is fallen. This culture is, you cannot live according to this culture, no matter what culture it is. It is incomplete, and it can only find its fullness in Christ. And I have Christ. I can live in fullness. You have Christ. You can live in fullness. And so we are a sign and wonder to the world in every culture, in the diversity of cultures around us. We are a sign and wonder to say, in Christ, I can live in fullness, and so can you. Awesome stuff. See, there's a rhythm to life. God's created seasons. He's given us a heartbeat. There's like, I reckon there's in heaven, there's going to be like this just solid groove that everyone's like, you can't stand still in heaven. It's like, mm -hmm. Kind of like a taxi rank. <laughs> you know? But God has put rhythms. He's like a metronome. And when we live according, when we stay on the beat, we flourish. But I also believe that there are truths, small t, that some of these truth communities that have formed, 
when they live according to those truths, they experience hell on this side of eternity more than they need to. And so the hope, and that is this gap in all these cultures, the purpose of the church while we're still here is to call in the culture of heaven, to call in the kingdom of heaven and, and live according to it and say, my friends, you are actually living more in hell than you need to live right now. Even this side of eternity, here and now, you can live in the fullness and the blessing and the mercy and the goodness of an almighty God. So I want to share a quick testimony. How do we confront these cultures? How do we stand up against them? How do we show the world something different? So Gabe said, my wife, her name is Evie. We've been married for 13 years. We have two children. And we have a, a little surprise Christmas present on the way as well, uh, which is not shocking at all when you find that news out, really. But we're amped. We're keen. And uh, so we've been married 13 years. We dated for three and a half years before that. She was my first girlfriend, and I do believe with all my heart she will be my last. Good word. All right. And... Uh, uh, we grew up in the youth group together, we need, we, so we were friends even before we started dating. But when we started dating, we made a decision that our first kiss will be on our wedding day. And now, I had a whole bunch of Christian friends who like laughed at us, laughed at me. Like, what are you doing? What's the problem? No, 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 no. All right. Anyway, moving on. But you know when, you know when your church friends, your Christian friends are criticizing you, that maybe you you're either doing something wrong or you really are sticking it to the man showing culture up, you know? You're really doing something to like, okay, expose, there's something wrong. Your, your thoughts are still governed by something that is not the kingdom. And uh, so anyway, let's fast forward three and a half years. The day before our wedding day, I go to visit Evie and she gives me this envelope and it's a card it says, the best gift I can give you, I love you so much, and it will walk down the aisle to you, my husband. Inside the envelope, there's this card. It says, true love waits. You can see how old it is, right? It says, by signing this card, I say, believing that true love waits, I make a pledge to God, myself, my family, and my future spouse to be sexually pure until marriage by the grace of God. Name, Evie Argerman, age 13, 29th of the 8th, 1997. We got married in 2006. I was in the room filling out the same card that same night. How about it? I wasn't sentimental enough to keep my card, though. Darn it, because that would have been quite cool. But um, how, so she gives me this, this, this on the day before our, our wedding day, and I just break down crying. I, I don't know why, because I knew it was true. But, <laughs> but it was just the, the fact that she, she kept it, you know? She kept her promise. And... Um, when she walked down to me that next day in a white dress, it meant something. And when her dad responded to the question, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Like it, it meant something because I didn't take her. He gave her to me. I waited for him to give her to me. And then when Piet Wallace, who, who married us, said, you may now kiss your bride, it meant something. And everyone in the, in the room knew that it meant something. And so people can say, oh, that's really legalistic. Do I feel like I was robbed in our dating years? Or do, or do I feel like 
we were better off. Would you like to sit with your daughter? So I've got a five-year-old daughter. She is literally perfection. Little blonde curls, ridiculously cute. Would you like to sit with your daughter and say, the first time I kissed your mommy was on our wedding day, when I was told I could? Would you? So if legalism leads to death and the Spirit of God leads to life, which category would you put that decision? Legalism or the Spirit of God? So how do we show up culture? We, and we think these grand thoughts, how do we, oh, we got to like get into government positions? No, it's by making little decisions. As a 19-year-old, I'm only going to kiss my wife when I'm told to on our wedding day. Show up culture. There is a better way world, and it's different to how you think. And I'm not putting that on anyone here. If you're dating, I'm not putting that on you. I'm just saying, ask the Spirit of God to show you a way that's going to model something different to the world around you. I'm not, it's, that's our thing. It's not your thing but just yield to the Spirit of God. And I do believe there are girls doing things that they don't feel comfortable with because they feel like it's a, a societal expectation, it's a cultural expectation. And I want to say that if you or someone you know, maybe friends of your daughters or who, whoever you know that could be in this situation, you're standing in front of a giant with an armor that doesn't fit you. You can't move. You're a sitting duck. You do not have to wear it. Today I am telling you that it is a lens that is going to set you up for failure. You don't have to wear, in Christ, we don't have to wear these lenses. We can take, we can remove the lenses. We can see a better way. Be free today. And also, if you feel like you can't stand up to the culture, you can't, you, I want to say that David was a young boy with a sling and some stones standing in front of a giant who had been trained from a young age for battle with a javelin and a spear. The giant was the one with his head off. You can do it. Be strong, be courageous, and you have a community of people around you that I believe there are men in here that will fight to the death for your freedom. That is the beauty of the local church. You are never alone. So again, sometimes our culture sets us up for failure in the mission of God. What is that mission? To lead people to life, to set the captives free, to bind up the brokenhearted, to empower the oppressed. It's often the things we're most convinced of, dependent on, or familiar with that hinder us the most. So Acts chapter 9, Saul the story of Saul's conversion. I'm going to read a quite a lengthy passage of Scripture from verse 1 to verse 19. It says, Me yeah, thanks, it's on the screen. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. 
So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has come... In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and, pla- come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings, before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Paul had lenses. Philippians 3 verse 5 tells us what those lenses are. A Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, uh, tr- from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, as, as far as legalistic righteousness, he was faultless. He's got all these lenses, all these accolades, but then he goes and he says, I, I consider them rubbish. He rips them off. See, Paul had to be blinded to everything he was most convinced of in order to enter into the purpose of God for his life. In order for him to accomplish and walk in what God had destined for him, he had to be blinded to everything he was most convinced of. Some physics. Why not? We're in a school hall. Let's do some physics, right? Newton's first law. Anyone remember it? Neither do I, so I'm going to read it. (laughs) It says, every object persists in its state of rest or uniform motion in a straight line unless it is compelled to change that state by forces impressed upon it. We're in the Rugby World Cup, right? Guy running down the wing, straight line, straight line, straight line, smash from from the side, right? Newton's first law in practice. So Paul, with all these ideas, this zeal for God, I am these, the way, these Christians, they are, they are rebelling against God. I am going to go persecute them. I am going to throw them into jail. I am on a horse to Damascus to do this. This is my God-given duty. Clothesline, off the horse. Boom, straight off the horse. He lands up on his back, and he is blind. And he finds himself blind and led by the, led by the hand. My question to you this morning is, will you be blinded to everything you are most convinced of and led by the hand into the purposes of God? I want to talk to you about your vocational power because so often in church we come on a Sunday and we watch a preacher or whoever's up behind a microphone and we think, go get him, go go do it for God. We'll see you next Sunday. Man, I want to empower every single person in this room today. You know, when, when Jesus says to his disciples, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, he was not talking to Matthew, the tax collector. He was talking to the fish guys. Right? If you are an engineer, he would say, I'm going to make you an engineer for my kingdom. I would, uh, I'm going to make you an uh, accountant for my kingdom. I'm going to make you a sound engineer for my kingdom. I'm going to make you a musician, a teacher for my kingdom. I'm going to make you a, a full-time mom. All, all moms are full-time, let's be honest, no matter where you are. But God wants to deploy your vocational power for His purposes. What is your vocational power? Your knowledge, 
your platform, your networks, your position, your skills, and your reputation. Do you have a platform? Do you have knowledge? Do you have a reputation? Everyone in this room has at least one of those things. God wants to take that, and he wants to deploy it for his purposes. And maybe you've just seen it as another job. But today, God wants to blind you and lead you by the hand. And so what is your response? How do we do this? See, I'll ask you this question. Where does your greatest passion and the world's deepest hunger meet? Where does your greatest passion and the world's deepest hunger meet? At that crossroads, you'll find the purposes of God. Paul had this zeal for God, this passion for God, but he was busy putting the people of God, the actual people of God, into prison. Then he came to meet this Jesus and he realized actually all of humanity, Jew and Gentile, everyone on this planet needs, to, needs this Redeemer, needs this Savior. So he spent the rest of his days and even laid down his life so that people would come to know this Savior. He, he, the world had a hunger, the, a deep hunger for the salvation of Christ. And he came and at the, on the road to Damascus, he found the crossroad between his greatest, his greatest passion and the world's deepest hunger, and the rest of his life was defined by that moment. We can all say, okay, God, what is, now what vision do you have? What's your vision? This morning I want to say, it's not about what vision you have, it's about what vision has you. Paul did not get up from that horse and say, oh, I've just had a great idea, let's go save the world. He was blinded, he was helpless, he was completely dependent, he, he walked around being led by the hand. He, did, he could not eat, he could not drink, he was completely dependent. There, he did not have a vision, a vision had him. He did not have a call, a call had him. Today, what vision has you? If I wanna conclude, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna recap three points, some responses then we're going to be finished. So the first point is that we all have lenses that blur the truth of God. We need to be aware of them. Recognize what cultural expressions, expectations are unhelpful to the mission. We need to remove our lenses. Our lenses maintain our defenses. Our lenses maintain our defenses. So the perfect example of this is those men who would rant and defend men online because my lens is, I'm blurred. I haven't, I can't see how I've added to the problem. I, therefore, I can't take responsibility for it. Therefore, I can't be a part of the solution. But as soon as we take off our lenses and we leave our defenses and we actually pick up the heart of God, the gospel, Jesus Christ laying down, no, de, de, absolutely defenseless on the cross so that the powerless could be empowered. Point two, what vision has you? What has blinded you to everything else and is leading you by the hand? Our response, can we ask God to impress the force of his will and purpose upon our lives? Are you prepared to be knocked off your horse and blinded to everything you're most convinced of and led by the hand? The main question today is, do you really wanna do the will of God?
think about it. There is no greater adventure. There is no greater purpose. But it is going to take everything. And point three, where does your greatest passion and the world's deepest hunger meet? God wants to deploy your vocational power for his purposes. Your response, if you want to find that crossroads where your greatest hunger, your greatest passion and the world's deepest hunger meet, I want to say that the map to that crossroad is right here in the church community. There are some people that with a dream, a God-given dream, the Holy Spirit has put a dream inside of you, and you're like, but I don't know how to do this. There's another person that may not have a dream, but actually has skills, platform, networks, influence that can unlock that dream. And in the community of the church, when the church starts to dream together and relate together and actually talk about what God wants to do in and through us in this beautiful city, that is when these connections happen and we meet each other at the crossroads collaboration of the local church so i like to thing i've started to do now is for every sermon have a have a hashtag because it forces me to have a point and the point is the, the hashtag is blind me lead me blind me to everything i'm most convinced of and just lead me i'll i'll, I'll forget everything i'll forget everything and so friends jesus is like the rising sun not because you see him, because by him you see everything else. If you want to respond today, if you want to say, I want to do the will of God, I want to be blinded and led by the hand, I want to find that crossroads and live the rest of my life, even if it's completely redefining my life, I want you to stand this morning. I'd love to pray for you. King Jesus, I want to just thank you that you have invited us on this adventure, us who are all unworthy, not one of us worthy of this call, of this journey with you, yet you have qualified us, yet you call us and you, you put us on the road with you, not to put people in prison, but to bring people out of prison, Lord Jesus. So, Lord, I pray today that the, that the crossroads would be found. I pray that you would unlock relationships that could unlock your purposes. Lord Jesus, I pray that people in this place would, would come alive to your purposes, that they would see how you have empowered them, you have graced them, you have given them skills, networks, platforms to actually see your work done on the earth, that we would see how we can confront culture's lack and to see you fill it, Lord. That we would point people to see their, their, their brokenness, but even more importantly, to see the hope of fullness of life, abundant life. And so Lord, I pray, come and empower us, come and commission us, come and call us as we pursue your kingdom, pursue your purposes with everything that we have. Blind us and lead us, Lord Jesus.